0: When you walk away from a practice session, how do you feel? Emotionally and mentally, where are you at? Are you really positive, completely amazed by the shots that you hit and the level of skills that you displayed? Or utterly exhausted and miserable? Frustrated at the world and wondering, how can I cancel my club membership?
1: It's very easy for people to think that their current performance during the the training or learning process is an accurate index of learning. And often it's not only not accurate, it's uh, very, very misleading. That's because conditions that can lead to rapid improvement in the learning uh, in performance don't support learning on the long-term.
0: So if you can't trust your performance during practice, you're constantly on this roller coaster of emotion over your golf game, what's reality?
1: and contrast other conditions that appear to create challenges for the learner, appear to be slowing down the learning process. Uh, I've come to label those desirable difficulties can actually enhance long-term learning. So it it makes a, it's a major factor and it's one basic reason why uh, people do not practice in an optimal way and why instructors often don't choose optimal conditions of instruction.
0: We have two questions to think about today. Number one, do we trick ourselves into thinking we're improving, learning, and actually getting better? Number two, what should we be going for in our learning environment? Well, today's guest, Dr. Robert Bjork, is gonna talk all about this.
1: This is Robert Bjork, I'm a distinguished research professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. I do research on how people learn, Often in
0: comparison to how they think they learn. Welcome to the Golf Science Lab. You're tuned into our first season all about motor learning. We're talking with the academics doing research in golf, learning about the studies and figuring out how you can apply it to your game. We're cutting out the myths and misconceptions and really trying to discover what research can tell us in a practical and applicable setting. We're talking about motor learning because it's one of the greatest areas to make progress in golf. It can help you become a better learner and improve the efficiency of practice and help your scores actually start dropping. If you haven't joined the Golf Science Lab Insider list to stay up to date on everything that we're doing and get access to exclusive content, papers, and research. For instance, if you want to get the entire interview with one of our guests on the show, Adam Young, make sure to head over to golfsciencelab.com backslash insider and get plugged in for our first season on motor learning. All right, let's start with the concept of learning and performance. How do we define those two terms? And we'll recap a little of what we mentioned in the intro of this episode.
1: Well, the distinction between learning and performance is fundamental and and goes back decades in research, both with animals and with humans. And basically, performance is what you can kind of observe and measure during the time People are trying to learn something or being taught to learn something. Learning has to be inferred, and it's not whether you've achieved learning will not become apparent until a later time. And whether, and it amounts to, can you then perform when it matters or can you transfer? Can you apply this learning to a new situation? And the reason it's so important is that. It's very easy for people to think that their current performance during the the training or learning process is an accurate index of learning. And often it's not only not accurate, it's uh, very, very misleading. And uh, that's because conditions that can lead to rapid improvement in the learning uh, in performance don't support learning on the long term. In contrast, other conditions that appear to create challenges for the learner, appear to be slowing down the learning process, uh, I've come to label those desirable difficulties, can actually enhance long-term learning.
0: One of the biggest issues here is measuring performance. How do we track improvement to make sure that practice is effective and efficient? And one thing that Dr. Bjork makes clear is it's certainly not by hitting your seven iron over and over and seeing it go slightly straighter by the end of your range session.
1: When we're just thinking of practicing in golf, it's simply something for someone like, how well are they hitting the ball right now? How does it feel? Where is it going? And if somebody gets into doing what we call block practice, namely they take one club, they... Hit balls in rapid succession. They hit one, then rake a ball over and hit another one. Stand there always sort of parallel to the lines or on the map. Kind of admire the ball against the sky. I may never have actually aimed at anything necessarily. That will lead to good performance. Because in part, if you hit a good shot, you'll drag a ball over and do what you just did. And so you can hit, you know, how many times do golfers say they moan when they're on the golf course, you know, they hit a bad shot and say, oh, I hit 20 perfect five irons in a row yesterday on the range and how could I hit the shot now? Well, very little learning happens with that kind of block mass practice.
0: I've reached out to someone with some practical experience with this topic so we could get another perspective on this.
2: Hi, my name is Adam Young. I'm the Director of Instruction at the Ledbetter Academy in La Manga, Spain. I'm also the author of the practice manual, The Ultimate Guide for Golfers, which looks at how to practice more effectively for golf to improve performance and learning.
0: So I asked Adam how this applies during a learning experience of a typical golf lesson.
2: So, you know, this, this goes into instructing a little bit. And, uh, you know, we can fake learning during a lesson. If we make a pupil stand there with a 7-iron hitting to the same target over and over again, then they're going to be performing pretty well. But is that actually going to be transferable? Is it going to retain? And, And the answer to that is often not. It's going to be a much lower rate of retention. But that's not to say that we shouldn't do that. As instructors, we have to balance out the expectation levels of the pupils as well as you know what's good for them um you know if if we just did what was good for a pupil, we'd have them all random practicing most of the time. It's not always the case. Some examples where that's not true, maybe if we knew to a person, then we might want them to stay in block practice mode just until they get accustomed to it so in the early stages of learning, that's okay, and it builds confidence too which is important for, for a person to feel like they're learning at least. But once they get to a certain level, then we want to f- switch over to more random practice. So once the, the motor program is, in, is there or built, we want to start improving our access to it. And that's where random practice comes in.
0: That's pretty scary, right? This experience you're supposed to have where you're learning, in a sense, might be fooling you into thinking that you're making progress. So... How do we know this is true? Let's go back to the research and hear how Dr. Bjork has proven this out in studies. we We'll
1: have different laboratory tasks. Uh, it's often not, it's not a golf swing, but it's some task that involves a motor skill, following a moving target with a stylus, knocking over hinged barriers in a certain order. There are a whole variety of laboratory tasks where you can measure performance during the training process and then you bring people back in a week or two give them a new version of the task to see whether learnings occurred, and then we also do research asking during that process asking people to predict their performance later or to make judgments of how well they've learned and very often they're completely at odds so for example if there are several things to be learned and you block practice on it and you then ask people to predict how well to do later versus they're learning those same several things but you interleave practice, people will always predict they'll be better later when they had the block practice, whereas the opposite is actually true. So there's what we call another issue of becoming metacognitively sophisticated, that is to, to to understand this process, not be misled by your current performance.
0: So Dr. Bjork suggests doing something a little different when practicing for long-term learning and improving long-term performance.
1: Research says that you should interleave different clubs, hit your driver, then hit a short wedge, hit over at a hit at a left-hand target, a right-hand target, try to hit a low ball, try to hit a high ball.
0: And when you start doing that, you might not see the performance improve from ball to ball, but the impact is going to be larger because it's
1: gonna stick. Have those basic changes in your brain, in your understanding of the swing in your behaviors, Have those basic changes that support learning, have they happen? And um, basically these things I call desirable difficulties, Can make those changes happen. So often, in some situations, in extreme cases, you can have practice conditions that make people look terrific, and at a delay, they can look almost like they've never even tried this skill before.
0: And that's the problem. Most people want to go to the range, get a bucket of balls, and improve from shot to shot, expecting to be better by the last ball that they hit. And that's not reality. The paradigm doesn't create learning that lasts. And if you want to improve performance of the long term, you've got to start making some of these changes that Dr. Bjork starts talking about, interleaving your practice, desirable difficulties, all of these things, which leads us really to creating a great practice environment. What's involved and where do we start?
1: If you're able to get out on a course, you and instructors say, and just not only hit all the shots that would come up in a normal round, but actually set up shots. You know, this drop a ball somewhere that requires that I hit a left to right shot, drop another one. So set up all those challenges actually on the course itself. And a lot can be done with just second shots. That is, you know, often you're not able to do this because you don't have this kind of access to a golf course, but The course itself can be just a uh, marvelous practice facility. And, you know, now if you've been having trouble with short wedges, every hole you play, you can hit about three short wedges to the green.
0: And there's some really good reasons behind this.
1: A lot of people put in a huge amount of time on a practice range and then completely thrown trying to hit, let's say, something like a a medium to long iron off a downhill lie, they have zero chance if all they've ever done is hit the ball from, um, you know, off a level man. It requires adjustments that unless you've experienced, you will never make the right adjustments. So this kind of practice on an actual course where you set up challenges for yourself, Where you're having a problem with a certain kind of shot that you don't try to avoid that shot, but include those. Those kind of things are crucial to making practice effective.
0: And here's where it might really hit home for some of you. People may not like it so much just because people, as I mentioned, like to do the things they're already good at. This gets back to the issue of we all want to feel great after practice. We want that last ball we hit to be struck perfectly. Proving that after this time that we've spent, after we've hit this bucket of balls, that we're able to figure it out and accomplish something. And we've already talked about how completely wrong this mindset is though.
2: Most people instinctively feel that if they are performing well, then they're learning. So, you know, changing changing that mindset is going to be the biggest uh, battle for the industry i think
0: with golf we want long-term improvements we want performance to be improved not just today but tomorrow and a year in the future so we need to practice what we're not good at we need to stop doing things we've already done we need to hit more long irons off of a downhill lie more short wedges to a tucked pin we're looking for those desirable difficulties and really becoming comfortable with the uncomfortable.
1: One thing is um, varying the conditions of practice rather than keeping them constant and predictable. So just introducing variation, whether it's clubs, targets, anything, that's one. Um, We alluded briefly to another, which is uh, interleaving the different things there are to learn rather than practice blocking. And there's one where people's intuitions are wildly off, not just in golf, but in all kinds of sports. I mean, you go somewhere to learn tennis, say, they will work you on your forehand, and then they'll work you on your backhand, and then the serve, it will all, virtually always be this notion, we'll work on one thing at a time. But what research says is that you ought to interleave the practice of those things. You you won't look like you're making as good progress, but you'll be learning better. And that's all related to to what's one of the most uh, reliable effects in all of work on learning, which is called the spacing effect. And that's that if you're going to study something twice or practice something twice, and you could do those two sessions right in a row, or you could do one session, go on to do other things, and then come back and do another session. A uh, long-term learning is much better when you space those s- practice or study sessions.
0: And just to clarify, interleaved and varied practice are not the same.
1: Well, interleaving would be like if there's separate components of uh, skill, like I mentioned in tennis, forehand, backhand, serve, that you practice those different strokes interleaved. Variation can take a lot of different forms. One would be simply when you're on the range with a given club, aim at different targets. Don't keep aiming at the same target. Uh, And there are many ways to introduce variation.
0: We're gonna jump back to Adam real quick to give us a little more insight into how we can start using variable practice next time you're at the range. Really practical, really applicable.
2: So variability practice is doing something that you want to do but in different ways. So this could be hitting your target but hitting it in different ways such as shaping it right to left, left to right, high or low. So you're achieving a target in, in a different uh, with a different trajectory. You could also try to hit the sweet spot by standing different distances from the ball such as standing too close to it and hitting the sweet spot, standing further away from it and hitting the sweet spot or even addressing while hovering the club or having it lay down on the ground. It might be nothing that you settle on eventually when you go to achieve maximum performance, but it helps you in learning, uh, learning coordination.
0: We've come full circle. We're back to what we started the show with. How should we feel when we leave? A practice session? What should be the emotions that we're feeling as we walk to the car? Should we be on top of the world feeling like we're the best golfer ever? Or should we be miserable trying to figure out how we cancel the club membership? And this is the attitude that Dr. Bjork wants you to think of.
1: Some of it has to do with the attitude that you come to in, in, in advance the the attitude you come with, so to speak. So just in general, there's an overemphasis in our society on innate talent and innate abilities. And then the power of practice, experience tends to be undervalued. So people spend a lot of time looking, you know, where do I have the gift? Where will I be sort of automatically good? And so they're often that attitude leads you to be just put off by difficulties that happen right away. So, so part of the battle is with individual people is just to make them understand that, for example, something like golf is, is very difficult. You know, it's, it, you, you can't expect it to be easy to start with. I think Willie Nelson, of all people, was quoted as saying, golf is a difficult game to learn, and then it becomes harder. And uh, there's a lot of truth in that. So, um, so there's a broad notion that people need to appreciate the capacity to learn that they have and how much benefit there can be of just practice, experience, and so on.
0: We're again going to take it back to Adam Young and how this applies in the real world when you're out on the range and when you're practicing.
2: So I normally, as a a general rule, I stick to a 3 to 7 out of 10 success rate. So if someone is achieving a 7 out of 10 success rate in the task that I set them, I would consider it too easy. And I would increase the difficulty incrementally by adding another constraint to it or or adding some some level of difficulty. And the reverse is true if if someone is only getting 3 out of 10, I would normally lower the difficulty level of that task so that it encourages confidence and a, a feeling that the player is learning.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Robert Bjork and Adam Young for sharing with us today. Adam Young re- released an amazing book just a little while ago called The Practice Manual. I have a copy and I highly recommend that you check it out. We'll have some links in the post on golfsciencelab.com to the book and his fantastic blog, Adam Young Golf. Also, if you want to hear the entire conversation from Adam, make sure to head over to the golfsciencelab.com backslash insider. To get access to the content first and to stay up to date on what we're doing documenting golf science. This episode was written and hosted by me, Cordy Walker. You can follow me on Twitter at Cordy Walker. It was edited, mixed, and produced by Just Hit Published Productions. And we will see you next time on the Golf Science Lab.